0: Uh, why don't we just take a moment to still our hearts and um, invite the presence of the Spirit to just convict and encourage us and uh, just center our hearts on all that Christ has done. Um, We've got lots of stuff in our minds and our hearts, baggage that we bring in here. And so sometimes it's just good to come to a slow stop and then just kind of go, okay, here we are. Our goal for the next bit of time is to focus on you, Jesus, and you only. No distractions. I give my attention fully to you. Okay? Whether that means repentance for a sin, whether that means um, humility, following after him in a choice, we are for what God wants this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you. And we stand before you in need of your grace every day. Thank you, Jesus, that every morning we are promised new mercies. Thank you, Jesus, that you supply those mercies. Thank you, Jesus, that um, we can do it on our own. So even now as we open your word, we invite your spirit's conviction and your presence here in a way that would sharpen us, that would encourage us, that would convict us. And ultimately would draw us together in you so that we are compelled to go out for you. And we love you, Jesus. And it's in your strong name we pray. Amen. All right. We are going to be in Judges chapter 3 this morning. Um, You can open, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Uh, Page 202 is the page that will be on in that Bible. Uh, Judges chapter 3, 12 Through 30 are the verses that we're going to be in. Now, if you remember, last week, Brady started us off in a series on Judges, which is not a terribly popular book, let's just be honest. Um, But it has some awesome stories, like some really awesome stories. And uh, today's story, when we were making this schedule out, I was like, I really want to tell this story because this is a story that talks um, about like really cool things, like a guy getting stabbed and poop who doesn't want to preach about those things or at least talk about them? So we're going to read about them and understand what God has to say to our hearts uh, today. But remember, Brady walked us through last week just a basic cycle that you can see throughout the course of the book of Judges that happens pretty much on repeat. And the cycle goes like this. It talks about sin You know, Israel's choice to sin, and then God delivers them over to an oppressor, someone who oppresses them and mistreats them and enslaves them. And then from there, they repent and they call out, and then God supplies a deliverer. And then from the deliverer comes peace or rest. Now, we look at peace and we think, um, this is not the Hebrew word like shalom, like everything is as it should be. It's more of like, you're just not at war. Every parent knows what that's like right? Like, we, can, we can all resonate with this idea that there's just not war happening, and that, like, sometimes that's a win, okay? So the book of Judges is calling us back to what good relationship with Christ looks like on a regular basis. And I always found two amazing things in the book of Judges, Israel's persistence to sin and God's persistence to save. Because, like, I don't know about you, but have you ever been in that boat where the same person has done the same thing to you, like the umpteenth time? And do you ever just think in your mind, I'd like to be done with you. I'll just go ahead and write you off, and I'm not going to deal with you anymore. And the book of Judges, more than anything, displays God's justice and his long-suffering in ways that are just unfathomable. And so today... We're going to be looking at Ehud, a left-handed judge. And we're going to learn that deliverance comes through apparent weakness. Just kind of keep that thought in your mind throughout the whole course of today, that deliverance comes through weakness. What looks weak is actually what turns out to deliver. So first couple of verses, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And you'll just, again, the cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. Keep that in your mind as we're reading. You'll see it kind of playing out. It says, And the people of God again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's making a strong point there. You can never sin without consequence. Okay? It says, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And then I'll just read verse 15 and we'll stop there. It says, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. And so I just want to make a brief observation as we start. We're going to be looking at basically two things today, this idea of sin and servitude, and then um, a peculiar providence. Like how does God provide something that doesn't look like what we would expect? God often delivers in ways that just like are a little backwards, if we're honest. And we're going to see that today. But I wanted to key in on two phrases, because when you read the book of Judges in our modern context, what is very difficult to swallow is that God seems to be like okay with some of these things. He seems to be somewhat okay with what we're going to read about in the next couple of verses, and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But look at the phrase in verse 12. It says, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And then further on down in verse 15, it says, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. And you're like, God, choose a side. He's like, I am. I'm choosing me. I'm choosing my side. I'm choosing my sovereignty. I'm choosing to work out things in ways that don't necessarily make sense to you. And so let me just see if I can explain this in a way that might be helpful for our hearts. Okay? Um, I've often heard it uh, said, choose to sin, choose to suffer meaning there's always a consequence that tails along behind sin. It might be latent, like you'll never see it in your lifetime, or it might be immediate, like you're going to get punched in the face, sort of immediate, okay? But sin always has a consequence. And so one of the things, when I read something like the Lord strengthened Moab against Israel, Israel being God's chosen people, and then I read further on down that the Lord raised up a deliverer for Israel, you're like, God seems to be playing both ends against the middle. Here's what I would just say. We don't need to rescue God from his sovereignty. He is perfectly within the realm of making a decision independent of my approval. I don't need to give him approval like, okay, God, now you got it figured out. And this is a very much a Western Christianity thing where I have to make sense of everything with my mind so that I can be okay with it in my heart. And I just want to tell you, you don't need to rescue God from his sovereignty. He's got it figured out. He knows what he's doing and it is because of love that he's doing it. He's looking at the people of Israel and he's saying, look, you were betrothed to me as my spouse and you're cheating on me. That's jealous love. Any husband in the room would be bothered if his wife cheated. Any wife in the room would be bothered if his wife cheated. it It would be backwards. I said that backwards. Sorry about that. You get the picture. We would be bothered and we should be and God is. So we don't need to rescue him from his sovereignty. He's got things well in hand, and it's all right. So sin and servitude. You can never sin without consequence. And I I think I would just maybe put it this way, that we are people who are uh, spiritual amnesiacs. We often and easily and quickly forget what God has done. We forget all that he's accomplished. We forget everything that he's promised. We forget everything that he's walked out and sovereignly and graciously controlled in our life in a moment of weakness or trial or difficulty, and we just cave. We are spiritual amnesiacs. We forget. And it's interesting because in this case, Israel forgets, and it says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then God strengthens a king to oppress them. Now notice what it says when, when, he, when he says um, he strengthened Eglon. It says that Eglon gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. you like, well, why does that really matter? Well, first of all, because now at the beginning of the oppression, there's like a team, You know, three different nations are now oppressing Israel. But by the end, we don't hear anything about the Amalekites. We don't hear anything about the Ammonites. So they just leave Eglon. They leave Moab. I would just say it this way, that misery loves company. And oppression loves partners. And I think it's very easy for us to see this, that sin weakens people. And by people, I mean like all of us, collectively. But sin also weakens individuals. It makes us susceptible to collapse. It's easy for us to take our eyes off the prize and to be hooked. Years ago, I was at a summer Bible camp. Um, and I remember, uh, fishing just along the shoreline, and this is odd, I don't remember who I was fishing with, um, I don't have the, the clearest memory of all of my childhood memories, lots of them were, you know, kind of like fragments, but this one I definitely remember being on the shore fishing in the middle of, like, the summer afternoon, great time to go fishing, right, when it's like 95 out, Okay. Wyatt's chuckling over here. He's like, Doug, get it together, right? And so I'm sitting next to this guy who, I don't know if he's ever cast a pole or not, but he's just like casting that thing out there. And you know hooks have like a little barb on the end, right? What's the barb for? The barb is so that once the fish bites, it can't easily dispel the hook. It, It bites, it hooks him two ways, and so I'm standing next to this hanyak who casts out a pole and I feel a weight, boom, just nail me in the back of the head and then the hook with the barb right in the side of my head. And he's like casting like this and I go forward and, and it stops right in the side of my head. I'm like, ow. <laughs> you, go to the, you go to the nurse and you're like holding a pole. <laughs> Got this. And can I just say sin is like that? I had my eyes on this prize where I'm like, I'm going to catch this big fish. I'm like looking straight ahead. I'm I'm not even paying attention to the danger that's around me. And it hooks me and it gets its barb into me. And then what? Well, it hurt. (laughs) And and then it had to be removed and it was even more pain. So sin leads to servitude. It's always over-promising and under-delivering. In fact, John 8, Jesus has these words to say about sin, just from a truth-to-life perspective. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You're like, well, I didn't sign up for slavery. That's such arcane language. You can't be serious, Doug. Like, I'm not. No, you are. I am. Every moment that I step into a sin that is displeasing to my Father, I am willingly saying, put on the shackles. I'll take it. Why? Because we believe that those shackles are going to provide us happiness, pleasure, or freedom. And this is Israel over and over and over again. We cannot sin with impunity, ever. So the Apostle Paul gives us a helpful warning. From a truth to life perspective in Romans chapter 6. Listen to what he says in verse 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. There it is. Like, what does that look like? It looks like waking up, rolling out of bed, grabbing a cup of coffee, sitting with the Lord and saying, God, I consecrate myself to you today. Any conversation you want me to have, any interaction you desire for me to be a part of, any act of obedience that would inconvenience my day and my plans, I set aside my heart for you today. That's what it means to present your bodies to Him. And then He goes on and He talks about you do this because you're those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as. Instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So truth to life, we need to repent consistently, repetitively, on a miniature scale and on a major stage. We need to repent. We need to be people who say, I made this mess. Because he's happy to clean it up. He cleaned it up once for all time, and he's continuing to. And so repentance becomes critical. Repentance is not a powerful uh, truth that you just hear one time, and you're like, oh, it's great, fantastic. I repented once when I was 12. <laughs> no, uh, your, your life should be marked by this continual return in repentance to God. Otherwise, sin will lead to servitude or enslavement. It's interesting because you think, well, if I was just stronger and I wouldn't succumb to that temptation or if I was just, this is my struggle and I'll be totally honest. If I was just a type A person, I'd be a better Christian. Because I feel disorganized and I feel like I'm not getting stuff accomplished and I feel like I'm failing God and I feel like I'm a disappointment. And and God's like, hold up. (laughs) I sent my son to take care of those things. Your job is to respond in repentance. Another verse or chapter and verses that you can go to, and we're not going to go there now, is Lamentations 3, verses 26 through 33. This will actually point you toward this reality that repentance actually involves sorrow. We are too quick to get out of any space that makes us uncomfortable. If I feel uncomfortable, I don't want that. I just want to move on. I don't know. It's good for you to sit in the consequences of your sin. It's not good for you to wallow, hear me. It's good for you to sit in the consequences of those sins. It's good to feel the weight of how that harsh word landed on your wife or your child. It's good for you to see those things because that's what he paid for. So deliverance comes through apparent weakness. What about providence? I'm going to read the rest of our passage after they... Um, the Lord responded to their cry of help. He gave them Ehud, and then verse sixteen is where we'll pick it up. It says, "And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab." Now Eglon was a very fat man. That's like my, what a great line, <laughs> right? It's, when I was a, a younger father. My boys would beg to have this story read at night. Read about the fat guy. (laughs) Okay. We can do that. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. and And he commanded, meaning Eglon, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached out with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For a second. Can we just talk about how cool the Bible is? Like you... I mean, the story is like, fast forward, and then all of a sudden it gets to this account, and it's just like, slow motion, right? And the imagery, you're just like, holy cow, that's incredible stuff as you're reading it. And it's also a little disturbing. So, said the hilt also went in after the sword. So, when he said it's a cubit in length, that's like close to 18 inches. Do the math. That's a large fella that he's plunging this sword into, Okay. And it says the hill also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out. And then it says, and the dung came out. That's also a little disturbing, but it just means the angle that he stabbed him with uh, led to what was in his intestines making its way out, which comes into play later because he says, then he had went onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them, meaning he had this whole conversation with the king. None of the king's bodyguards are there. None of them caught the fact that there's an 18-inch sword that this man has smuggled in. And you're like, how in the world does that happen? These, these guys should not sign up for secret service work. Okay. And then he, they, you know, he leaves. He escapes. And when he escapes, the attendants are waiting outside. Listen to what it says. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Dude's on the toilet. Okay? It says, and they waited till they were embarrassed. Why? (laughs) I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Why would they be embarrassed? Because it smelled. Okay? These are some funny things that you just can't skip over quickly. They waited till they were embarrassed, and when they're still... But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. God will always make a mockery of oppression. Can I just say that? That will be our closing piece. You can mark it now, Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the, what? Cross. So in the cross of Jesus Christ, God laughs at the oppression that's happening to people. And you're like, well, doesn't it make him indifferent for doing it now? No, God values accountability. God values accountability so that you cannot sin with impunity now, not knowing how much it cost him. It cost him the life of his son. He had escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was to do that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So you look at Ehud, and it talks about how he was a left-handed man, but he's a Benjamite. And, And this is where I love the scriptures, because when you really pay attention, you're like, oh, what? Benjaminite, what's that really mean? Well, Benjamin means son of the right hand. So obviously the author is doing a little play on words here. Here's a left-handed judge, but he's the son of a right hand. <laughs> so there's a little bit here that just kind of makes you chuckle. Um, when it says that Ehud was left-handed, we read it in our Ingress Bibles as like, I'm, I'm a righty, raise your hand if you're a left-hander. How many left-handers do we have in here? Okay? So think about that for a minute. We hear that and we're like, oh yeah, just left-handed guy. Actually, the, the Hebrew actually says restricted as to the use of his right hand, which means that he was either crippled or maimed or had a deformity of some sort that made it impossible for him to use his strong hand. So you're like, how did he get the sword in? Because everybody's looking at his right hand. And they're like, there's a guy not fit for war. There's a guy not fit to be a deliverer. Why? There's a guy who is no threat at all because he's, he's got a sword on his thigh that he's trying to hide and a right hand that is somewhat malformed. Have you ever tried to walk, trying to hide something? It's hard to do. You're going you're gonna to walk with a limp and then you're going to have a hand that's maimed. And it's like, it, at that point, you would be deemed no threat. So, you're like, how in the world did Ehud get that close? One look at him. Oh, pfft. he's nothing. And he gets right into an audience with the king. And the king even dismisses his bodyguards because he's like, he's no threat, no worries. Think about that. He's no threat, he's no worries, he's despised, who cares? Isaiah 53 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is Jesus. Just like Ehud was an unsuspecting left-handed deliverer, Jesus, metaphorically, is our left-handed deliverer. Someone people would look at and be like, whatever, who cares? What sort of strength could he really have? What's he going to do, die on a cross? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace. Now that's true peace. Not just the land had rest for 80 years, but peace. Peace with God. You see, Eglon had grown fat on the tributes that Israel had to bring. When it says that they would bring tributes, it means like the first of their produce they would bring to him. And and literally he got fat off their oppression, which is kind of funny because Eglon's name means little calf. Again, you, you start to see like all these pieces and it just kind of makes you chuckle. Like, man, what was the author of Judges up to? He was probably chuckling the whole time he was writing it. He's like, no, well, they're going to catch this someday. <laughs> like, because he was a little calf that had been fattened to a cow totally ready for slaughter. And God took care of it. God will make a mockery of Oppression. You see, this is a picture of what oppression and God's final word is, isn't it? You see it in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus declares this about himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And listen to this, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, oppressors grow fat on the back of the tribute that the servitude of our sin supplies. Can I just ask you? Is there a current struggle that you're facing for which the enemy oppressor of our souls is choking you out? You see, to oppress actually means to choke, hold, on someone to take hold of the neck. What a great picture for what sin does. It it feels so freeing, and then all of a sudden, it just closes in, and you're like, what is happening? It's interesting to me, because when you start to think about how Ehud got in there, how in the world did he get past everybody? Well, it says that they delivered the tribute, and then it says he turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Now, this is a high religious society, so they would have regarded anything as, as a spiritual word, which again comes back to this idea of Jesus. If Jesus is not the center and someone says they have a spiritual message for you, you can reject it out of hand. But it says he turns back at the idols near Gilgal and he goes back to the king and he says, I have a secret message for you. Now, the king would easily have been like, oh, you do? You stopped when you were at the place of religious significance, the idols at Gilgal, and you came back. You must have received something. And so he's like, tell me this juicy tidbit that it's going to make me more powerful and more corrupt. Like, what will it be? You know? And so he gets in real easily. And then God delivers and provides peace. See, like I said, my boys would always ask me to read this story. And it's funny because the, the irony is literally laughable, isn't it? Like when, when you read the story, you're like, oh, a very fat man. And then he was stabbed. And, then, and, and you can almost read it somewhat detached. This actually happened. There were 18 years where the the nation of Israel was oppressed. Do you think that was funny? Do you think they sat back for 18 years going, what a stitch, this is great, I get everything I want and I'm oppressed. No, like their lives were rotten. There's no laughing matter about sin at all. Those years, those 18 years, they seemed long and crushing and demoralizing and... Can you relate? Can you sit back in your heart of hearts, just in silence and ponder, man, I felt like I had been oppressed. May not be for 18 years. Who knows? But what is it? What is it that has a chokehold on your neck? You see, in Psalm 2, There's this picture. It goes like this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So Eglon thought, who is God? Who cares? I bet he cared then. You see, no one will be able to, in eternity, defy the Lord with impunity. It will come back to bite them. Because it says in Psalm 2 that they were no match for his anointed. And it says in verse 4 of Psalm 2, he who sits in heaven laughs. Like you really think... You're stronger and more mighty and more comprehensive and more sovereign and more than me? No, not even close. You see, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to usher in a kingdom that turns on its head every other pretension of power. And we, we live in this perilous reality where we have one foot in this kingdom of this world and it's hard because we don't see the fulfillment of his reign in totality. And so we get discouraged and we struggle. But we also have one foot in this other kingdom that he came to establish in our hearts that is increasingly growing and bearing fruit. And so we straddle this line of difficulty and victory. You see, the overarching and ultimate reality, the truth is just this, that we're given tastes. With every bit of repentance, with every bit of return, with every bit of surrender to the will of God in Christ, who is our left-handed deliverer. And you say, why? Well, because we're a left-handed people. We're weak and have no ability, and we struggle and yet he saves. You see, in these narratives that we see in the Judges, God delivers in ways that don't make sense in our current cultural climate. Just at all. In fact, they appear laughable. How insensitive, how politically incorrect to call that man fat. How, like, whatever it might be, it just doesn't make sense. I invite you to consider. Rome was the strongest empire at the time of Christ. I invite you to consider what's that empire look like now? Versus what does the rule and reign of Jesus Christ look like now? It's laughable, right? This is the power and the authority of Jesus and he did it by washing feet and sacrificing himself on a cross and walking out of a grave. Like that seems odd. Yes, it does. But it works. It works. Colossians 2.15 and if you do nothing else this week memorize this verse. Write it on your mirror. Save it to your phone. Read it over and over and over again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Meaning Jesus. You see, deliverance comes through apparent weakness. Jesus looked weak, but he wasn't. And he isn't. And so as we wrap this week and we, and we go back out, let's remember all the irony, all the humor, but all the power and all the authority that Jesus has given to those who call him his. So let me pray for us, and then you'll be dismissed to lunch. Father, thank you for your many mercies to us. Thank you that you were despised and rejected and not esteemed. Thank you that part of your salvation means my humbling. I pray that you make us a humble people. Make us humble individuals and a humble people so that we can serve with power and authority those people that you call us to. And we love you, Jesus. We ask your blessing on this next hour as we eat food and spend time together as friends and family. In your name we pray, Jesus.